series called New, and then we're trying to look at faith, not in what well, we're calling it new, but it's not really new. It's, it's the way, hopefully, faith is, has been meant to be done since the beginning of the church. And so if you've missed the last few weeks, you can always catch up online or in our app if today is interesting to you and you want to get, hear more about how we got to this point. Um, but so far, we've been talking about how um, in our culture today, it has become more accepted um, to voice doubts. Uh, voice criticism and skepticism towards Christianity, especially among younger generations, among teenagers and teens. Um, and that's not really a bad thing in, in my personal opinion. Um, I personally like love questions. I love doubts. I love um, skeptics. Um, that, that's really, I, it, it really interests me, especially because of my history, as we talked about last week. Um, but the concern is, and my concern is, and hopefully part of your concern should be, is that overall, I don't think as Christians and as the church, we do a very good job of being receptive to those questions, to those doubts that the next generation of, of human beings is having. And on top of that, I don't think we're receptive to it, but I also don't think we're well-equipped in a lot of cases to handle those questions. And I'm not saying all of us need to be apologists or essentially people who defend the Christian faith, but I do think for those of you here who consider yourselves a Jesus follower, um, you know, I think it's good to have some tools in our tool bucket to at least begin a conversation or be open to a conversation about faith for someone who is a little bit skeptical. And so last week we talked about um, this guy, right here, the, the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible, um, and how often points the Bible has become kind of a lightning rod of criticism for non-Christians and Christians, in some cases Christians as well. Um, and we talked about last week how the Bible is not the cornerstone of the Christian faith, which could really shock you um, if, if you don't know how the Bible came about, um, because the Bible really wasn't on the scene. The Christian Bible as we have it today really didn't come on the scene until about 300 50 years after Jesus, um, and the foundation of Christianity um, is, is Jesus. This, this book is authoritative, okay, and the Bible is inspired by God, but it is not the Word of God. And when I say Word, I'm capitalizing, you can't see that, but I'm capitalizing the word Word. The big capitalized Word from God is Jesus. That's what John tells us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God is Jesus, and that's the foundation of our, uh, of our faith. Um, the point being that, that Christians and non-Christians alike, I think in a lot of cases, are making the Bible out to be something that it isn't, it, that it's not meant to be. And if any of this freaks you out or you've you got questions, uh, this is an interesting way to start a, uh, a message, Taylor. Um, I would just love to have coffee with you. Um, or if this is kind of rocking your faith boat a little bit, um, let's, let's sit down and have coffee and talk about it because this is a really important thing. We're going to talk about it for the rest of the day as well. Um, but I just want to make sure you all have that invitation. I'll buy the coffee even. So it's not going to cost you a dime to sit down and have coffee about it. Okay. Now today, we're going to continue to talk about the Bible. And then next week, we're going to move on. But today is a note-taking day. So if you're not a note person, I would really recommend that you have your phone out or something to just write down some notes. Uh, normally, I have like one point for an entire message. Like there's one idea I want you to take away. Today, I have five. And so it's going to kind of feel like I'm hitting you really fast with a lot of things, but, but really ultimately what I want you to do, what I hope you leave today with is to realize there is a lot to consider when reading this thing. 
and that you shouldn't oversimplify it. And in so doing, you, you kind of bring yourself back to how Christians viewed the Bible when Christianity started, or more likely when, when the Bible actually became a part of the Christian tradition. Because this book is complicated. This book was written by a few dozen authors. It was written over a time span of a few, almost two millennia. And so it's not quite as straightforward as sometimes we make it out to be. I don't want you to avoid well, I don't want you to feel intimidated by it to the point where you're never going to read it, but I'm just saying that I think we need to treat it with a bit more um, uh, awareness than maybe we generally do, and to be willing to dig in some time to make sure that we have the whole picture of what's going on in the Bible, which in some cases, and it, to, in, which my hope is today, I'm going to give you a little bit more of that, um, the big picture. Okay. Now, um, when I was trying to figure out... Uh, I guess, where the Bible played a role in the Christian tradition. It's one thing to go to a class, especially in seminary, and they teach you uh, theological things and theological ideas and big terms, and, and all that is, is really helpful. But I'll be honest with you, and, and, and I tell you this story because I hope it's helpful for you too, um, but my understanding of the Bible and the role it has in Christianity actually um, really got solidified when I took a class on Islam, okay, in seminary. So seminary, they had a class on Islam, and I wanted to learn more about other, other, uh, other religious traditions, and in some extent, to better understand my own, okay? And so I took, took a class on Islam, and that's where I really had this light bulb moment when we discussed the role of, of the Quran, this is a Quran, in, um, in, the, in the place of the Islamic tradition. Now, this hopefully is going to be helpful for you. Otherwise, it's going to be really weird because a pastor's holding up a Quran in a Sunday church service, and so this could be really awkward. I hope it's helpful um, if I do a good job of explaining this. But to help you to understand where the Islamic tradition came from, uh, or Islam in general came from, uh, I'll give you a real quick rundown. Um, a guy named Muhammad went up to a cave in a mountainside, kind of go on a retreat, and while he was there, the angel Gabriel came down and said, Muhammad, I am going to tell you what you need to write down it is the word, words from God. I want you to dictate what God says into this book that we're going to call the Quran, and that will be the foundation of this new faith called Islam. Now, some of you Christians may say, okay, well, isn't the angel Gabriel also in the Christian story? Yes, and we could go into that, but we don't have time today. There's a lot to be said about that part, okay? But the angel said, I'm going to give you the word of God directly to write in the book. I'm going to dictate it word for word to you, and it's going to become the Quran. And then over a span of time, Muhammad met with angel Gabriel and eventually wrote down um, the, the Quran, okay? Question to you, okay? And, and even if you're watching online, what is the foundation for Islam? It's the Quran. What is the foundation for Islam? The Quran. What is the word that came down from God to earth in Islam? The word that came from God to earth in Islam is the Quran. In Christianity, what is the foundation of Christianity? Anybody remember from last week? Anybody? You gotta yell louder. Jesus, yeah. And what word that came down from God to 
earth and is the foundation for Christianity. Jesus. Jesus is the one that came down from God in and is the foundation of Christianity. Can you translate the Quran into English and it still be authoritative? No. You cannot translate the Quran out of Arabic because as soon as you do, you have lost the original intent that God had for it to mean. It's literally written by God. In some traditions in Islam, you can't let the Quran touch the ground because then the word of God has become defiled. Now, can you translate the Bible? Oh yeah, we translate it all the time. There are some crazy translations of the Bible. And do we say, this is an NIV translation. Some of you have an NLT, you have an RSV, you have an ESV. There's so many translations. And do you consider that to be authoritative? Of course you do. We can translate our Bible from the original Hebrew, Greek. Why? Because of the Bible like Islam or like uh, Arabic and and uh, the Quran is to Islam the Bible in Islam, in Islam saves you in Islam what is your salvation the Quran in Christianity it's Jesus it's Jesus you read this to understand the commands. And if you do the commands well enough, long enough, good enough, you get to heaven. In Christianity, you put your faith, not in the Bible, you put your faith in Jesus. And this is a really, and this is where it kind of clicked for me, is because to elevate the Bible to the level of Jesus, which is essentially the level that Islam puts the Quran, is what we call biblio-idolatry. It is to worship the Bible. And in Christianity, we don't worship the Bible. We worship God. To treat it as the same thing is idolatry. But unfortunately, in, in a lot of Christian traditions, the trend is heading in the way that the Bible has the same authority or place as Jesus does. But Jesus came from God. The Holy Spirit comes is God. It is not, the Bible is not the end-all authority in Christianity like it is in Islam. And that's an important distinction. The Bible is, a, is a inspired. It is authority, but it is not all things. So here's my first point for today. The Bible is the account, in some cases, the multiple accounts of God's story. The Bible is the account, in some cases, the multiple account, because in the situation of Jesus, we have four accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are our gospels. They're four different accounts of the same story. In the book of Kings and Isaiah, there are stories that are told from different perspectives. In Nehemiah and Ezra, there are different stories told from different, or the same stories told from different perspectives. It's multiple accounts of the same story, God's story. The Bible authoritative because it gives the account of God's story, of God's command, of God's truth, of his deity, and the authority that happened. Thousands of... Should I switch microphones? Would that be better? Is it cutting out for all of you? Okay.
Now you're going to hear a lot of wind, though. And this is, this is mixed to be a female voice, by the way, so not a male voice. Yeah. <laughs> this is Grace's mic, not Taylor's mic, but we'll do it anyways. Okay. Um, the authority of the Bible comes from the fact that over a thousand years, people experienced God working in the world and through their lives, and they recorded it. Its authority comes because of your and my decision to trust it, to follow it, and that's when it changes your life because it's God's truth. I want you to consider these stories, the stories that you read in here, didn't happen because the Bible happened. These stories happened and the Bible records it. In other words, you don't exist because your birth certificate says you exist. You existed and then they made you a birth certificate. Is the birth certificate authoritative? Yeah. It, 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 uh, it proves who you say you are. Is it validation? Yes, it's validation. Would your birth certificate exist if you didn't? No, because you came first and the birth certificate says you did. That's the place of authority the Bible should have in our hearts and our minds. It's not Jesus, but it is, in God, it is God's inspired story and it needs to be revered as such. It's because of what God did that gives the Bible its authority. But God did it first and foremost. There's a difference. Number two, the Bible is for us, but it's not always written to us. The Bible is for us, but it's not always written to us. A famous example of this, you see it all the time, is of one verse in Jeremiah. And uh, if, if you don't even have to read the, the Bible to know what verse I'm talking about. All you have to do is walk through Hobby Lobby. I talk about Hobby Lobby a lot because they got a lot of those scripture things you hang on the wall, okay? And this is one of those scriptures that, that are embroidered into pillows and on the walls and stuff. Here's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and And here's what I hear as a pastor all the time. I hear the phrase, oh, God has plans for me. God's promised good things for my future. Or I hear it a lot in uh, prosperity gospel um, uh, churches. Is God has these great plans for me. Because it's right there on the pillow in my living room. And I just can't help think to me. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to say it for how it is. Who is God through Jeremiah talking to in that verse? He's talking to Israel 3,000 years ago. And God's trying to get to Israel and say, listen, if you follow my ways, I promise to you that I will not harm you and that I will, in fact, prosper you. But we think to ourselves, oh, he's talking to me. He wasn't. He was talking to Israel 3,000 years ago. So what we should be asking is, what can I learn about the character of God by reading this passage in Jeremiah? Well, we could be reading or learning that even when God's people turn from him, he will pursue him. God will pursue people that turn from him and he will work for our good. If you read Jeremiah in the context of the entire Bible, you realize that God is working for your good if you love him. Paul tells us that. 
God is working for your good if you love him. But not because Jeremiah promised Israel 3,000 years ago. And we get those things confused. And we want them to feel good, but that's not what the Bible is saying because the Bible is not always written directly to us, especially in the Old Testament. In most of those cases, they were written directly to Israel. They were commands for the nation of Israel. But you've got to read it in the entire context of the Bible. And careful not to take promises of old and apply them to you today. There's still truth there. You can still learn about the character of God in those verses, but it's not directly about you. Otherwise, if we do that, we start to borderline, we start to touch up against a different religion like Islam, where everything in the Quran can be applicable now and in the future to the people who adhere to that religious tradition. And that's not what we believe or Christians have believed for 2,000 years approximately about the Bible. Though it has made a resurgence, in, especially in Western culture, especially in the United States in the last 80 or so years, which I'd love to go into that, but we don't have time. Number three, God adjusts to our capacity. When you talk, um, for example, when you talk about the uh, birds and the bees with your kids, do you adjust the story based on their age? Hopefully the answer is yes. And then as they get older, you have to talk about some different things with them because you adjust to their capacity. If you, if you tell your kids about death or they ask about death, isn't it true that you adjust how you explain it to them based on their age, right? What you tell them at eight years old may be different than what you tell them at 16. Hopefully it is. You adjust to their capacity. God does the same thing with us. God has done the same thing, I believe, throughout, um, uh, uh, throughout the biblical story. Um, because a lot of times there'll be uh, this criticism, I hear it a lot, um, about Christianity, especially about the Old Testament. And, and it'll, say, it'll go something like this is, um, it, you, you Christians believe in a tradition that has a history of God commanding people to stone other people. And, and how can you believe something like that? Isn't that just morally, don't you just feel that inside that that's, that's wrong? And of course, I'm going to say, well, well yeah, I, I don't generally go out and, and attempt to, to stone other people. But there are places where God says that's what you're supposed to do in the Old Testament. But if you understand how God was adjusting his uh, holy law, his holiness to his people in the context of the capacity, it actually makes some pretty decent sense. Because what was God trying to say in their context? Well, most cultures that surrounded Israel had no respect for marriage. The religious, uh, the religions around the Israelites did not have any, um, you know, much too high a standard for marriage. And so God, in fact, is actually quite a rebel in this way. He's coming in and saying, no, when you get married, I need you to think about it as a really high bar of commitment. So high that if you break the sanctity of that covenant, it means death. Both literally, but also know that when you commit adultery within a small, you know, Israelite community back in those days, it could destroy the whole town because it just destroys all the relationships in the town. It could destroy whole tribes in some cases. It could lead to a significant degree of pain and hurt for the community 
around them. And God says, I don't want you to do that. That's a big no-no. And you'd say, well, couldn't there have been other, you know, ways in which God could have shown this? Well, but in those days, it was normal, especially around the Israelites, it was normal for you to sacrifice children to gods. And God's like, no, I don't want you to sacrifice any human being to me, but I want you to understand the degree at which this can hurt people. And it may feel extreme, but in those days in their capacity, it made some degree of rebellious sense. It seems dramatic today, but it wasn't written for us today. It was written for them back then. But what we can learn from the context of what's happening is that God's character says, hey, when I give you a command, when I give you direction, I mean it for your good. I mean it to be held to a high standard. I want you to respect marriage for the commitment that it is. So that the world around you, the human beings around you, the cultures around you will look at you, Israel, and say, wow, those Israelites, they're real culture changers. Respect for my wife? Wild. But man, that they just, they do respect their wives and vice versa. They brought a different level to these basic ideas that had never been seen in that culture, in that world at that time. It feels strange to us, but it was crazy, crazy, um, you know, high level of expectation back in those days. Number four, always consider context and genre. Now, you might say to me, well, Taylor, I didn't pay attention that much in high school English class, so I'm not really sure about the whole genre thing. There is a lot of genres in the Bible. There's poetry, there's song, there's narrative genre, there's wisdom genre, there's a, a prophetic genre, okay? And each genre kind of carries a different feel to it. Just as today, if you re- read a, uh, you know, a nonfiction book, a fiction book, a history book, a science book, they'd all feel differently. Why? Because they're all getting to different points. For example, poetry is not a science book. If you read a poetry book, it's not going to be the same as a science book. Narrative genre is not going to be the same as historical genre, especially historical genre as we consider it today. But unfortunately, a lot of people begun to read the Bible and expected it to sound and be like uh, the history books that we uh, read today, that they should carry the same weight and degree that we believe they should today. But that's, that's not the way to read the Bible. You have to read the Bible in the genre in which it is and know the context for which it is. So for example, a, a, good, a great example of this um, is uh, uh, out of the book of Joshua. And uh, it's, it's one of those verses that, again, Christian critics will, will kind of pull out as a general thing of saying, you know, your God is, is mean and barbaric and, and, and really bad, okay? And essentially what happens in this verse that I'm going to read to you is God says uh, to um, Joshua and the Israelites to go into these villages and, and just annihilate everyone. And when you read it in without context and without genre, it sounds exactly like that. So I'll read it to you. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned around and attacked Debur. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They, were, they left no survivors. 
they did to Deber and its king as they had done to uh, Lebna and its king and to Hebron. So you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, they just killed everyone. Complete genocide. How awful. It's the Old Testament and, and I can't believe you would believe such, such a book. Yes, but if you, again, if you read it out of context, that's what it says. But if you read it in context as narrative, which is what it is, and you zoom out to get the verses around it, this is what context means. You get the verses around it, then you zoom out again, you get the the chapter around it, you zoom out again, you get the books around it, and then you zoom out again and you get the whole Bible in context. Now you're starting to get close to what the authors meant. That's Joshua chapter 10, when they left no survivors. You zoom out, you include Joshua chapter 15. Listen to this. From there, he, Caleb, marched against the people living in Deber. Okay, wait a second, Joshua. Author, whoever, whoever wrote Joshua. I thought you just annihilated everybody in Deber, and then five chapters later, there's people living in Deber. How does that work? Because in the narrative contextual form, what they tried to get across, and this was all throughout history, this was their way of saying, we won a great and decisive battle. No one was left standing. And you say, well, that's a little dramatic. Why didn't they say that? Well, because you embellish your stories all the time too, right? I mean, come on, you tell your stories to other people. You kind of you up the game just a little bit more. You know, it's like, yeah, I totally won right? Or he didn't know what hit him. You know, you kind of embellish your stories. That's what they did too. It wasn't that they actually, you know, every single person complete genocide. No, no, no. This was there again and again in Hebrew narrative forms, as well as other narrative forms like Egyptian and uh, Assyrian and Babylonian and other forms of writing in those days. This was the way they wrote. Not that it actually happened. But then you say, well, that's not, that's how um, they need to write it more as history like we know history books today. But that's not how they wrote 3,000 years ago. You can try to make it something that it isn't, or you can call it for what it is. And that is contextual narrative genre. Get a study Bible. This is a study Bible. And at the, the first half is the scripture. And then at the bottom half of the study Bible is a bunch of um, contextual information to help you understand what's actually happening in the book. It's not all things, but it is definitely a starting point for you to dig in to understand what's actually being said. Okay, last one. Christianity is not anti-science. I feel that needs to be said again. Christianity is not anti-science science. And yet, this is what I hear all the time. And as an agnostic, I, I thought the same exact thing. And when I argued with or debated Christians on this topic, I was like, well, you, you know, you're kind of taking science and you're throwing it out the window. But that's not what Christian Christianity is. It, it has been more so lately for the last about, again, 80 years, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I was just, uh, got, got sent a video, actually, um, within the last month of a, a conversation between Ricky Gervais, if you know who he was, he was on the uh, off, British version of The Office, okay? And um, he was on Late Night with uh, Stephen Colbert. And uh, Colbert is a, a very outspoken Catholic, and Gervais is a very uh, outspoken um, atheist, okay? And essentially, they get into a little debate uh, of the existence of God, and Ricky says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially puts the Bible at the same place as science books. 
And then he says, if I have a choice, I'm going to go with the science books over the ancient religious text. And he kind of gives an explanation why. But essentially, his point is the same. It's, it's I'm going to go with the science books over, over, the, um, over the Bible. Which, to, which, when I hear that, and I hear that a lot, um, I just think to myself, well, you're putting the Bible in a place it's not meant to be. The Bible is not the same topic. The Bible is not the same genre. It's not written with the same purpose as a science book. In fact, it's not even in the same age category. Okay? The Bible began, get, began being written thousands of years before we had science books as we know them today. And so to take a Bible, an ancient document like the Bible, and put it next to a science book, to me feels just borderline irresponsible. They're not the same, they're not the same thing. Because if you make the Bible answer natural world and scientific truths, then you have to defend the Bible like a science book. If you make it a science book, you got to defend it as a science book. But it's not a science book. St. Augustine, um, you may have heard of him before. You've certainly seen a building or two named after Augustine. Uh, in the, the Catholic Church, um, uh, made him a saint because of all the great theological writing and works that he did. He lived um, about 350 uh, 4 AD to uh, 430 AD. Okay, so this was the period of time when Christianity had just become the, the approved religion in the empire of Rome. Okay, it had the rubber stamp. It had become the religious majority in the Roman empire. So an incredible time to be alive if you were a Christian experiencing, you know, significant persecution over 300 years. And then for your religion to become the, the majority religion in the empire of Rome. And he said a lot of things. Okay, St. Augustine did. But essentially, he wrote this little um, few paragraphs. I'm going to summarize it. But it really is an incredible statement. And, it, and then the statement's even more incredible because even though he made it 1,500 years ago, we still debate this today. And he wrote it, um, and he said, um, uh, and, and this was on the topic of, of science and the Bible and, and religion, okay? And he says, he's, he says um, essentially, non-Christians— Non-Christians, you don't have to be a Christian and you know things about the natural world. And he was trying to give an example of, of in those days. But he said, you don't have to be a Christian, regardless of who you are, and especially non-Christians, through reason and learning, they know things about the natural world. They know things about our elements and they know things about the orbit of the earth and the, um, and the, and the, and the moon. And they have achieved this through logic and, and reason. And then he says what happens is um, these informed people approach a Christian. And the Christian comes along and says to them, no, you're wrong. You're wrong to believe this is the orbit of the universe, or our solar system, rather. You're wrong to believe these things about our natural world. And if you want to know how to look at them correctly, you need to look at them through the lens of the Bible. And here's what Augustine said in response to treating the Bible as a science book. He said, if they, a non-Christian, if a non-Christian finds that a Christian is mistaken in a field in which this non-Christian knows well, essentially, you know, you go up to a, a, chemis, uh, uh, a chemistry major, a Christian comes along to a chemistry major and says, no, these are not the elements in the periodic table because the Bible says so. 
And this non-Christian is going to look at that and say, you are maintaining a foolish opinion. And if they have a foolish opinion about Christians, then they're going to have a foolish opinion about our Christian books. How then are non-Christians going to believe these books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? When they think our pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves haven't learned from experience in the light of reason. In other words, they're going to look at the resurrection of the dead. They're going to look at hope and life everlasting. And they're going to say, well, if you believe this about our natural world, then you don't know anything about life after death. And they're going to look at you foolishly and they're not going to hear the truth that this story has to tell. Because you've made it become something it's not. And so don't, essentially he says, don't be a fool. Don't make this be more than it is. Don't try to get the Bible to say something it doesn't. Because if you're wrong, then people won't believe you when it comes to the matters that are matter most, like their salvation. Don't let someone miss out because you've misrepresented what the Bible speaks to. And to me, that's just like a personal heart check. Like, is it really worth winning that argument and risk someone not hearing the good news of Jesus? Is it worth defending something that I may very well be begin taking out of context that the author of the particular book in the Bible never intended for it to say just to win an argument or just to win a cultural point or a political point? in our politically um, you know, uh, critical environment today, and then in turn, they never are interested in learning more about the good news of Jesus. Augustine says, it's not worth it. Don't do it, because it's foolish. Going back to our first point to wrap this up. The Bible is God's story. Not in one writing, not in one sitting. It is God's story over millennia. That God worked in the world time and time and time again. People saw it and they changed, it changed their lives. So much so that they wrote about it. And then Jesus came, the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us to bring us truth and grace. And people saw it. They followed him and it changed their lives. And then he died. And they thought it was all over. And the disciples hid in fear because they thought it was all over. The, the, you know, they're following this whole thing that Jesus had started was all over. And then he rose again. And it changed their lives. And they couldn't help but tell others about it. They couldn't help, help have conversations with other people about it. And they couldn't help write Letters to people about it. And those letters were collected and they made up our New Testament because it changed their life because of what God has done for thousands of years. And that, my friends, I think is worth trusting in. But to know that this is so much better than just an ancient book. I don't have faith because of what the text says on a certain page. I have faith because it's God's story. I have faith because it happens. Because it happened. 
I, when, when, when you read something in the Bible, you read about Hezekiah in, in, uh, in, in 2 Kings, and you read about his stories and his accomplishments, and then you go to Israel and you walk through the tunnel that Hezekiah had built on the verge of the Assyrian invasion of Judah to bring fresh water into the city of Jerusalem to endure the siege. When you walk, you, you think you're going in, you read the directions that says you're going to be in the tunnel for five minutes. And then, you know, 15 minutes in the small, crowded tunnel later, you realize that you read the directions wrong. And it's actually a 30-minute hike through this tunnel that goes on forever and ever and ever. And you're the last person in the line, so no one else is behind you. So you think like there's going to be a monster that comes up and gets you behind. behind. That's just what happened to me. But you realize you're in this tunnel that, and you see the, the chisel marks along the tunnel wall because of Hezekiah's men who, who carved out this tunnel. You realize this is real. When, when you stand on the, same foot, uh, on the same steps that Paul learned from his mentor all about Judaism as he became a Pharisee, and how Paul's mentor, um, uh, is, it's well documented that Paul's mentor wrote letters to Jewish synagogues all around the Mediterranean rim. And that's what Paul did too. He ended up writing letters to all the Christian churches all around the Mediterranean rim. When you stand on those very same steps, when you stand at the base of the, the crumbled tower where um, King David anointed Solomon king, this is not just hopeful thinking. This is where these things actually took place. There's a lot of places in Israel where they don't actually know, but they say that something happened there. They don't actually know, but there's places where we know this is where it happened. And you stand there and you look. And in Lachish, you see the Assyrian Empire's invasion and utter destruction of the, the, of the fortress in Lachish. And you, if you look hard enough, you can find arrowheads from the battle still today that took place thousands of years ago, documented in Kings. You realize this isn't just something written in a book. It's God's story that has been working and transforming lives for millennia. It's so much better than an ancient story. It's God's story. And it doesn't have to be any more than that. That is sufficient enough for us. And that can be sufficient enough for you. So my hope and prayer is that you leave today maybe a little uncomfortable. Maybe your opinions need, you know, are feeling a little shifted or poked at. But ultimately, I hope you leave today with the understanding of God's power and truth that has transformed the world for millennia. That is how we got this. And that is what this is about. If you would, bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for preserving these texts for thousands of years so that we can understand them for what they are that we can learn about you through them. Our lives can be changed because of them. Lord, help us to wrestle well with what we've talked about today. Help us to wrestle well with the role the Bible plays in our lives. Help us to process through the truths that are in there the truths that people tell us around us and help us to sort all those things out in the right and God-honoring way. Help us when we have questions not to walk away and avoid them, 
when we have doubts, not to walk away and avoid them, but to engage with them. To not be afraid to go deeper, to dig in. To not be afraid to pursue the faith that changed people's lives after the resurrection, that, that spread Christianity, not just around uh, modern day, what now is modern day Israel, but around the entire Roman Empire. Help us to know what they knew well. That the word became flesh because you loved us. That you came to earth to save us, not to condemn us. To show us your love, your character. To usher in a new kingdom, a new way of life and living in truth. Help us to know that. Help us for that to become our foundation from now and for forever. Lord, give us the strength and the wisdom to live this out as you 